Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. In this episode 374, we feature New York Times bestselling author David Baldacci, who's back on the podcast with the second book in his praiseworthy 620-man series featuring ex-Army Ranger Travis Devine, who in this book is dropped into a small town in Maine to solve an unexplained mystery. Kirkus calls the story a complex, high-powered thriller that will keep the reader guessing, a winner from a pro. David is a global number one best-selling author whose books are published in over 45 languages, and in more than 80 countries with 150 million copies sold worldwide. It's a pleasure to have him back on the show for the third time. David, welcome to, to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back. Thank you. Yeah, and congratulations on this book, The Edge, uh, the second book in the 620-man series. I really enjoyed this story, and um, I'd kind of like to jump in, not with the plot, not with the characters, but with the setting of this story, because uh, you set it in a small town, in Maine. I actually looked up Putnam, Maine. I couldn't find it. So what are we patterning this town after? Yeah, lots of little towns along the coast. Putnam, yeah. my wife and I, um, we would take our kids up there when they were little. We would uh, go to the beach in Agunquid and Wells. And I've been all over Maine. My my cousin, John Galdachi, was a governor of Maine for two terms. So I've been all the way south, all the way up to the uh, north, uh, to the Canadian border. My wife has family from uh, French Canadians. So they had lived in Maine as well. So Putnam was the name of the family we used to rent the house, beach house from when my kids were little. And I always thought it sounded like a cool name. And I like to use fictional towns now because if you use a real place, um, if you put the mailbox in the wrong corner, someone will email <laughs> you and tell you. So this is a way to prevent me having a lot of grief <laughs> from people. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, my, my question was going to be, how did you acquaint yourself with the setting? But it sounds like you acquainted it just because of your family connections. Yeah, no, and and we were we've been up in Maine the last two years on different events. Um, I was in Kenny Bunkport for one of them, and you know, right along the coast there. In fact, the farther you go north on Maine, uh, the elevation increases, so you're looking at cliffs and crags and everything like that, which is where Putnam is located. As far it's farther north than Maine, uh, in the Gulf of Maine, where they do a lot of the lobster fishing. So it's a very atmospheric place. It's rugged and isolated. And it's exactly the, the environment that I wanted for this novel. We took our children, uh, I think when they were about uh, 12 and 8 years old, to Bar Harbor, Maine, and my son decided he was going to get in the water. Uh, he came out blue. It was uh, <laughs> a bit chilly, a bit chilly up there, but uh, it really was it's a, it's sort of a craggy coast, and I sort of had that vision in my mind as I'm reading the book that this could have happened along that area where there, there's a thunder hole or something up near Bar Harbor where the water yes. comes shooting up through there. It's it's very it's 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 beautiful environmentally uh, and aesthetically beautiful up there, um, but you really have to know what you're doing. Particularly, you're sort of Maine is ninety percent forest still. You know, it has a longer coastline in the state of California, um, so most of the inhabitants are along the coast and along the southern coast. Um, so it's a hard scrabble life up there. You know, they depend a lot on tourism and logging and also obviously fishing. Mm. Um, climate change has done a number on the lobsters and the shrimp up there, so. They're struggling right now. Well, I have to say that uh, I think you missed an opportunity because when Travis was interviewing some witnesses, I didn't see him break open a lobster and dip it in some uh, 
you know, melted butter and put it in his mouth. Come on, are you not going to give us a little uh, tour of the <laughs> of the, the the taste of the lobster? Yeah, I've done I've done that lots of times. Uh, trust me. Uh, I, I I maybe I did it because my wife is, has a shellfish allergy, so I didn't want her to read that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that that that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But I kept waiting uh, either for the lobster roll or for the lobster right out of the. You brought the lobster in through the character, of course. And speaking of characters, let's talk about them for a second. Um, you've got uh, some character names in here, and in your acknowledgments, uh, you tell a couple of people we hoped you like. Uh, who you turned out to be. Talk about how you, you have contests and put people in your books. Yeah, so I've probably done this over the years, maybe 150 times. So charities will approach me and say, can we auction off a character name in one of your books, upcoming books, to benefit our charity? And I, of course, you know, um, I, I do that a lot. And there are f three or four of them in this novel. Um, one of them is for the Mark Twain house. In fact, Francois Guillemet, who is a mm -hmm. medical examiner in this novel, um, she's married to the um, head of the chairman of the board of the Mark Twain House, which I'm also on the board of. Um, and I've been waiting for a couple of books to use her name, and this one really fit. And I think she'll she'll like the character. She's certainly a prominent character in the novel. And the other two characters are the, the police chief and the deputy there, uh, Richard uh, Harper and Wendy Fuss. And they're, I think uh, one of them was a charity in Florida, and I forget what the other charity was, but it's a great thing. It's a win-win. It's fun for me to come up with, with characters, <laughs> these names, and then the charities make money and they do things to help people. So it's, and the people who were on the books are like, I'm immortalized. I'm here forever. Thank you. It, it, it's also a great marketing deal because you know they're going to buy about 100 books and give them away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Like They're going to go to Costco and they're going to say, wow, you must really like this book. You bought 400 copies. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, did any other character names have any special significance to you? Do you uh, sometimes, you know, authors will hide uh, some friends in there or some, some people that they've known for years? I've, you know, I've done that um, over the years where, like in this one, I have, there's a friend of ours uh, who we've known for a long time, Harvey Watkins, and he, and, and Harvey has loved my books, and he's just salt of the earth, solid guy, um, and I didn't tell him I was going to do it, uh, mm -hmm. and I get a book every year for him to read, um, and I slipped him in, he's the journalist that talks to Divine, and I know when Harvey reads that book, he is, he's, <laughs> Harvey's like 89 years old, so I know Harvey is just going to be, you know, I'm going to hear from Harvey for sure. And it's going to be nice. So I do that occasionally and yeah. people don't know. And when they get the book, they're like, Oh my God, you know, I'm a character. Yeah. That's Thank great. You. Well, I, you know, I didn't really think much about the title because I just jumped right into the book, but I thought about it later. Uh, the title of the book is the edge. It's uh, and, and I'm wondering, does it have anything to do with uh, where the body was found in this particular book? It, it, absolutely. Partly that because Jenny Silkwell was found right off the coast on a, on a uh, narrow cliff and in, in, actually in the Atlantic Ocean. She was shot and fell over the edge. But also in this book, I thrown so much at Divine, I felt like I pushed him right to the edge on this mm -hmm. novel. And one one step and the, and the guy's dead. Um, and in the cover sort of reflects that there's no it's sort of it's sort of symbolic that there was no margin of error in this in this story for him. And if he had let's, had one misstep, it was going to be over. Yeah, and you sort of, um, you know, bookended him a little bit with something that's going on in another part of the country. You start off uh, with an inciting instance set on a train in a foreign country, and and that I had you on the podcast when we talked about the first book in this series, uh, and he was sort of in a, you know, big city environment. He's investigating corporate greed and fraud, and and then boom, we're in the second book, and you're on a train somewhere else, and I guess that's a way for you to bring him back in book 
three, maybe. <laughs> I know <laughs> that, that, that preferred mode of transportation, the train. I've been on that train many times yeah. uh, between Geneva and Milan, and uh, it's a beautiful ride and, and, and the most picturesque landscape I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it was <clears throat> one reason I did that was because I sold this series to Netflix and uh, the showrunner writer, um, I talked to him at length about it, and they're thinking about setting the story in Geneva. Mm. And um, so that was sort of my tip of my hat to him. Like, okay, here you go. It's gonna, I'm going to open the book with the train ride coming from Geneva. And I know when he reads it, he's going to be thrilled about that. So, And it was also a way for me to sort of, one, introduce <clears throat> the reason why certain things happen to Divine in this novel um, by showing what he did in the very first chapter. Two, showing that, you know, he's not just a domestic sort of guy. He, he's His work carries him all over the world um, in very interesting things. Um, and also, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to really have a, a punch in the face to the reader. I, I wanted them to really step and take notice right in that first chapter and go, okay, okay, I'm ready. Let's yeah, roll. Yeah, let's let's ride. Let's go. Uh, well, it, can you talk any more about the Netflix deal and what's going to happen with the with the series? Yeah, so they, um, Netflix is, has a lot of different divisions. And it looks like what they're going to be doing with this is making it into a series of movies. Um, and they love the divine character. They sort of described him to me as an American James Bond. Mm -hmm. and I said, yeah, I built him to drop him anywhere in the world. He's instead of a martini and a tuxedo, he carries a Glock and a lunch pail. <laughs> so he's a yeah. blue collar working. He's working a blue, blue collar James Bond, right? Yeah, yeah. Which I, I like even better. I've never really liked tuxes that much. Um, so they're they're excited about that. And as I told them, and they agreed, I built this guy so we can drop him anywhere in the world, and he can survive. Um, just because skills that he has uh, around him and he's built up over the years. He's just an intriguing guy. You know, you, you root for him. The odds are always against him. Um, and he's an appealing character. And in this novel, too, I, I, sh I show a softer, more human side of Divine. And there are a lot of people that he meets in this small town who have a lot of problems. Um, and he could have been just focused on mission only, get away from me. I don't, I don't have time to worry about that. But that's not what he does. You know, he befriends a number of them, and one in particular he really tries to support. And that shows a very human side to this guy, which I think is important because he's so, otherwise the physicality about him can be a little overwhelming. And I didn't want people that to be the only thing that people took away from him. He's a, he's a human being. He feels, he bleeds, he suffers, he has pain, and he has, he has empathy for other people. And I wanted to showcase that in this novel. Do you think, I know you've had experience with this before, do you think the... Uh producers and the writers are going to try to push him more toward the womanizing James Bond? Or are they going to give him sort of the human human side that you've, you've tried to do in this book? <laughs> well, I, I know the showrunner and writer very well, and he and I have the same vision, and he's he's really right on, in the same lane with I am about that. Because we all, <clears throat> at the end of the day, uh, the human side, the empathetic side is far more interesting, uh, mm -hmm. both on page and screen. The, you know, the, the the guy running around and, you know, with lots of different women. I don't know. That seems very dated right now. Right. Yeah. I think that we're going to stick with the divine that's sort of created the novel because at the end of the day, that provides you with a lot more emotional substance that you can use in the books and in the, in the movies. So I don't think I asked you this before when we talked about uh, this character, but uh, his last name, uh, Divine. Um, did you think a long time about that name? And how does that fit with what you just described about your character? Yeah, you know, it's it's so weird. Sometimes names are very hard. Travis Devine flitted into my head within seconds of when I thought I was going to write the book. I don't know where it came from, quite frankly. Um, you know, it's, but when I think about it, there's always the subconscious is always pulling tricks on your, you know, on your mind. 
So I thought the way I was going to build his character, <clears throat> his life is anything but divine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's been, this guy has been through the mill and back. Um, so I thought that was sort of an interesting play on words. And it was just unique. You know, you don't hear of many Travis's anymore. And certainly Travis Divine, I, I've looked around. It's not a name that I really see very at all. And it just seemed to fit him. It's 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 sort of an anomaly. It's it's an, an oxymoron. And in certain instances, so is he. I mean, he can go into a room and beat six guys up. But he's also the kind of guy, as I showed in this book, that will decide not to do that because he doesn't have to. You know, he walks into a fight and he doesn't fight, not because he doesn't think he can win, because he knows he will win. So what's the point? Uh, there was a great scene right outside one of the restaurants where he talked down three thugs who were gonna gonna beat him up. But if you think about Divine, he is actually willing to sacrifice himself for other people and putting other people ahead of him. So he's got that sort of side to him that fits with his name. Uh, a little bit about the plot: This is a CIA operative, Jenny Silkwell's murdered in rural Maine, um, and Travis Divine is sent in to try to find out you know, who done it because uh, she might've been carrying some, some uh, CIA secrets with her and they didn't want that to fall into enemy hands. And it, it has this uh, enjoyable trope of the locals versus the federals. You know, you got Travis Devine coming in and that always creates, I think, a fun and uh, tension between the locals and the, and although Travis is sort of posing as a, federal agent for Homeland Security, because that's what his boss tells him to do. It sets up that you're a federal guy, we're the locals. Um, do you enjoy writing that? I mean, it just seems to be able to bring out a lot between the local characters and and the main character. I did. And some of that is based on personal experience. And I was a, I was a trial lawyer for 10 years, and I was based in DC, but my practice took me around the country. So when I would go to other courts, I would have to be waived in by local counsel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, a, it's just a, a formality and pro hoc vici. So, but I was always the big bad DC lawyer coming into these, you know, towns and the other states. And I was always looked down upon because they didn't want me to be there. They thought that I thought I was smarter than everybody else. And I didn't know their ways and all that stuff. So writing this novel, I, I drew on a lot of those experiences, the, the suspicion, the tension, you know, the anger, the fact that, you know, you shouldn't be here because this is not your place. This is our place. You can't have this. You know, you've got your place, Mr. Big Shot. Um, mm -hmm. So that was kind of fun. And you're absolutely right. The tension was there from the, the very first page. And I understand it, too. When you send in people like that, you're almost saying, like, well, the locals can't do the job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, who would take kindly to that? I wouldn't. Yeah. So I had a I was a lawyer, too, in my former life. And uh, I had to go to New Jersey once to argue a case. And the judge called me down. She said, Mr. Wade, um, up here, we talk a little bit faster, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we do not we do not have all day <laughs> so that's the difference in arguing in the south and arguing uh <laughs> i love that i love yeah. that loss. yes i could definitely see a new jersey just saying that you're welcome to use that free of charge there you go uh, so um you drop a little uh reference in here and and i'm sure this is because you've been on charlotte Rears podcast before but uh, you drop a little reference in here to charlotte north carolina it was great a little nod to charlotte uh Tell us why. So we have really uh, dear friends. In fact, the guy used to be the CFO of my American publisher uh, and his wife are two of our best friends. They, uh, after retirement, they moved to Charlotte. 
all three of their kids live there and they, all three of their kids have kids and they have like eight grandchildren now and they're a very close-knit community so we had visited them many times mm -hmm. in charlotte um and wow i mean my god the place is booming i can't i don't i can't imagine any other city in the united states growing any faster than charlotte mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a cool place i mean there's so much to do the restaurants are great the sports community it's just the culture we've been to the, some of the museums there it just seems like a really vibrant place both for the young and the and the old um so that was kind of a, a tip of my hat to them um, when i was thinking about a place where somebody might want to retire yeah I, a lot of people would like to retire to charlotte yeah absolutely and of course charlotte Riz podcast too right so exactly right you're you're <laughs> top of my mind <laughs> All right, well let's talk forensics a second one of the characters uh uh French name you pronounce it, I think, or is it Italian? I can't remember. France. Yeah. yeah. Um, she runs a funeral home with her brother. She's a medical examiner. And while um, this book is not overly heavy on forensics, you do have her in the main character focusing on the angle of bullets and whether there's the stretch marks caused by gravity or something else when someone's found hang. Um, where does that knowledge come from? Do you have to brush up to learn the forensics? Uh, do you have somebody in your back pocket that you consult with on forensic matters or do you just pick this up over the years? I, I have definitely picked a lot of it up over the years. I have a whole shelf full of books that deal with this, uh, these issues in really graphic ways. In fact, when my kids were little, I kept the, the, the cabinet <laughs> locked so they could not look at these photos. They're pretty graphic. And I've been to morgues. I've looked, I've, I've been to autopsies. I've seen dead bodies in various states of being examined. Um, and it's just um, people that I've talked to, but I've read a lot in that field. I'm kind of a forensic junkie. Um, so those things are interesting to me just because they're scientific, but they're science that can lead you to the truth. And the truth in the most important way, who killed someone, um, which everybody deserves to know that so that the people can be punished who did it. Um, so I find that stuff fascinating. I keep it very lean in the novel. I don't want to make this into a forensic textbook. But if it's important for the people to understand, for instance, the ligature marks, gravity versus strangulation, they're very different. I, I always love to say crime would plummet in this country if we forced every American to watch like 10 episodes of Forensic Files. <laughs> because they would know they're never going to get away with it. I mean, some of the stuff I see on there, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You really thought, you know, using bleach, you know, to wash blood away would really actually do it. So yeah. Um, so I, I'm fascinated by that stuff. And it was important in the novel as well, because that's a way to determine, you know, was, did the person, you know, uh, take their own lives or were they murdered? Well, yeah. with hanging, it's really easy to see that if you know what you're looking for. Mm, interesting. Oh, this is a, I've got a few questions on writing before we do that. You've got a little reading from the book you're going to do for us. Uh, you want to tell us uh, what you got and then just jump in when you're ready. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this is a scene where Travis Devine has arrived in Putnam. Uh, he's checked into the place where he's staying. He's gone out on the coast road and he's approached the Silkwell resident, which is the old home of the Silkwell family, where two of the Silkwell children, Alex and Dax, still live. And he's watching it through his binoculars and just trying to get the lay of the land and a little bit of what's going on in this town. Constructed of rough-hewn timbers and rugged dark stone that was probably locally quarried, Jocelyn Point possessed the tall, looming face of a hunk of marble statuary with a wooden-railed widow's walk at its zenith. Multiple turrets, both cone and square-shaped, all topped by slate roofs fouled by the elements, stuck out here and there from the home's facade like wayward strands of hair. The exterior was covered with nature's makeup, chunks of moss and patches of lichen, which evidently flourished in the damp, briny air. 
He saw other buildings dotting the large property. Some looked abandoned, others were falling down, but still others looked reasonably habitable. Maybe these were the old servants' quarters, he thought, for when people actually had them on properties like this. The grounds had been allowed to go mostly to ruin. The hefty wrought iron gates that had once been attached to stout stone pedestals and blazoned with the letter J on one and the letter P on the other were both hanging on to life by a single rusted hinge each. The place had innumerable windows, all small, gleaming, and mullioned, like the eyes of a spider, with a little ability to capture much sunlight, but only to reflect it back. A large wooden door that was the main entrance to the place was battered and sullied by weather. Straggling, leafless trees stood next to the house, their bare limbs caressing the crudded walls with every passing breeze. Sounds like a house from Dark Shadows or something, yeah. <laughs> so do you... Um... When you write that kind of description, are you doing that from your imagination, from a photograph, from memory, a little bit of all together? What do you do? Yeah, it's a combination of all of that. Um, I've seen places like that, I've seen places like that in Maine, actually. Mm -hmm. um, some of it from just recollections I've had of other places, uh, and some of it is imagination, some of the smaller details. You know, the mullion windows uh, always have reminded me of a spider's eye, you know, with all the different facets upon it. Um, and they don't really let in a lot of sunlight in. They reflect most of it out, which is sort of backwards. That's the way those windows were constructed. And what I was trying to do with that was not, you know, exactly tell you what the house looked like. I was trying to build an atmospheric feel for you. Um, one of age, one of uncertainty, one of really harsh elements that can bring the strongest thing down. So, you know, it's not just describing the house. I'm not doing an HGTV tour, you know, a knockdown so you can build something up nicer. I'm trying to lead you into the story and let you know that these things are important and these this theme will be will follow you throughout the story. Hey, listeners, we've got a few writing life questions here to come for David Baldacci. But before that, uh, here's a little uh, interlude from the narrator of Death by Podcasting. Hello, podcast listeners. I am Bill A. Jones, the narrator of Death by Podcasting, a novella written by Sarah Archer and Landis Wade and published by Charlotte Readers Podcast, LLC. I would like to invite you to experience Death by Podcasting. It's available in print, ebook, and <laughs> my personal favorite, audiobook, wherever books are sold. And here's the bonus. When you buy Death by Podcasting, you support Charlotte Readers Podcast. And you learn how dangerous it can be to podcast with authors. Here's a taste of the story. Podcast co-hosts Raspy Fuse and Salty Remarks receive an anonymous text. One of the three author guests you plan to interview Tuesday night intends to kill you both. At first, the co-hosts think the text is a joke. Why would egotistical poet William Z. Wisp, sexy romance author Della Molasses, or tightly wound thriller writer Edwin Nocturne want to kill them? Raspy and Salty have never met the scribblers. The co-hosts approach their killer interviews as a fun adventure until they learn another literary podcaster died mysteriously when she interviewed the authors. And a psychologist specializing in writer therapy has been treating the writers for mental health issues. Worse yet, the co-hosts discover suspicious ties between the authors and disgruntled members of their own podcast team, doubling the suspect list. Raspy and Salty decide to tap into their experience reading and writing mysteries to identify their would-be murderer and unravel the plot before it's too late. If they can't, 
their sense of humor and wordplay will be all they have left to avoid death by podcasting. To learn more about Sarah Archer's writing, check out saraharcherwrites.com. To learn more about Landis Wade's writing, check out landiswade.com. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. Happy reading and listening. And oh, if you ever decide to podcast with authors, be careful out there. All right, a couple of questions. I noticed uh, when I read your bio again this time, um, you got this little line in there about how when your mother gave you a, a line, uh, well, you, you said you've been writing since childhood, and, and when your mother gave you a line notebook in which to write down your stories, uh, and, and you thanked her for that and being your inspiration, she said she only did it to keep you quiet because every mom needs a break now and then. <laughs> yes, I know. That one, the phrase she used, I still remember to this day, is that you'd gotten on my last nerve, boy. You know, and uh, so I was one of those kids that never shut up. I'm sure I, I, my mom had had it. You know, I was the youngest of three, so I wasn't the only kid. Uh, but I, uh, when I grew up on Austin Avenue in Richmond, people used to call me the Austin Avenue lawyer because I would argue with everybody about everything. Um, and ironically enough, I grew up to be a trial lawyer. Um, I guess I just started early. But really, the two things my my parents did that really helped me a lot. One was the the journal my mom gave me that sort of said told me, gee, I can write stuff down too. But the other thing they did, they took us to the library every week and I checked out, you know, a dozen books a week and I read them all. I grew up in Jim Crow, Virginia in the 60s and 70s and I could have turned out very differently and books and libraries really saved me because they showed me the entire world through books and taught me great empathy and showed me that things, certain things were right and certain things were wrong. And um, I always credit books to really having changed the trajectory of my life uh, but for my parents, you know, taking us to the library a week wasn't like our we had money to buy tons of books and have them all around the house. We didn't. Um, but that was a critical element of my development as a human being. Are you uh, I know it's always risky, um, but I know you are a big believer in libraries and books. Uh, are you out there taking a stand at all on this whole book banning thing? And do you have I donated a ton of money uh, to Pan America. Uh, to help them open an office and hire people in Florida to fight back against book banning, which is 40% of the book banning is taking place in Florida. I can tell you unequivocally, anybody who knows history knows that book banning has been done throughout our history and it never ends well. And um, and it's the first step in many things. You know, uh, you say, well, we, I will, we want to ban these books. And if you let people ban those books, then they're like, well, I want to ban these other books. And then I want to ban certain activity. And then I want to ban certain people. Because it never stops, you know, human beings are human beings, you give them a little bit, and they just take more and more. And the idea that you can say you, and people talk about parents rights, okay, well, one parent can ban any book they want. What about the 50 parents who wanted the book on the shelf? And I had one guy on screaming at me on Twitter, when I wrote about that, he said, well, they can just go to the bookstore and buy it. And I wrote back and said, why would should they have to buy a book? When they are a taxpayer funding public libraries and schools? Why shouldn't they be able to go and check the book out for free? And I said, and by the way, um, if you let this keep going, do you think they're going to stop at school and public libraries? They're already going to places like Barnes and Noble and telling them stop selling these books. So they won't stop. You know, anybody, you know, legislatures can pass any law they want. If they if they tell bookstores you can't sell these types of books, okay, you know, they can fight it out in court. But for the time being, they won't be able to sell those books. So it is you're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. First thing I ever learned in law school was the slippery slope is indeed slippery. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. You're from Virginia. I'm from North Carolina. You know, there's a conservative element in both states. And if people get a little bit of an edge there and think, well, this will work, then they're going to try something else. And uh, I, I'm with you. I think that uh, a parent should have the right, you know, when they've got a young child, if they don't want their children to read something, that's fine. But they shouldn't have the right to tell parents what their their children can and cannot read. And I think that's the difference here. Yes. Yeah. All right. Real question about mysteries and thrillers. Um, publishers and librarians and online sites and the BSAI, whatever those codes are, they try to classify books and put them in a particular category. Okay. Is it a mystery? Is it a thriller? Is it suspense? And, you know, I've heard that basically you can describe a mystery as this, you know, what happened and a thriller as what's going to happen. And yet your books, uh, there are several puzzles to solve, you know, about what happened, but also the reader is worried about what's going to happen. So what is this genre anyway, David? <laughs> <laughs> this genre is just, a, it's, it's, I call it the, the, the genre of good storytelling. Yeah. You know, for me, I don't really try to put myself into a box of a mystery and a thriller. One, uh -huh. I, I really don't know how I would do that. I once had a, a writer describe it to me one way that I thought was pretty clever. She goes, a mystery is when one person dies. A thriller is when a million people could die. <laughs> <laughs> okay well that's good but this does have that uh sort of traditional i mean you put him in a sort of a detective role right from the beginning he's he's going in to solve a crime and yet you've got this thriller element to it because there's other forces that are chasing him and chasing the people there so i don't know I'm, I'm, i agree with you i like a little bit of both uh in, in a book a, a mystery and a thriller um, i do too mysteries mysteries for me are more intimate there's a you know, smaller you know I'm not not to say that, you know, I, I wouldn't be sad if a, a, hundreds of people died. I absolutely would be. But it's hard to make that an intimate sort of thing, you know, mm -hmm. where you have one person die and you're trying to figure out it's it's an emotional tie right there. And readers can focus on that and not by di be diluted by this. Oh, my God, you know, volcanic eruption of all these people dying, which, mm -hmm. you know, dilutes the effect of a single person dying. So I, I like to focus on the mystery, but I give you the thrill element as well. So uh, I like reading books like that. and I like writing books like that. Yeah. Uh, learning new tricks. You told me once before that you continue to make mistakes and continue to learn and grow as a writer after all your books. Are there any examples of this book? Any, any new tricks you learned or tried or something you found refreshing in this book? Yes. So when I first started out uh, this novel, uh, I wrote 25 pages. I had Divine in a certain role and I had him in a certain geographic place and it just wasn't working for me. So I just chucked the 25 pages and I wrote 100 pages where I had him in a different role in a different geographic location. And I got to 100 pages and I'm like, I'm just not feeling it. It's just not there. I don't, I don't, I'm not excited about this story or what I've done so far with it. So I, I was frustrated. I threw those pages away and I just walked away from for a couple of weeks and just thought about it. And I went back and I was like, I can make something out of his role in the first pages. And I think the second geographic location was far more interesting. I just had him in the wrong role there. So I finessed both ends of that and put them together and everything clicked. And within, you know, eight, eight or nine weeks, I had a first draft done because I knew where I wanted to go at that point. And that just reinforced for me that I'm not saying you need to outline the whole thing. I never outlined the whole thing. I didn't know the ending, but you need to at least have, have crystallized in your mind, you know, what role your characters are going to play in the novel and where they're going to be doing it. Because those two things are going to contribute a lot to the success of the early stages of the novel. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a lesson that, you know, make sure you've got that set before you sit down and write it. But on the other hand, sometimes you don't know until you've written it. 
and that it's not working, that you need to change it. And so that was a, that was a new thing for me uh, in this novel, and I've learned from it. And if it happens again, I'm not going to get really frustrated because I know it's just part of the process of me getting to the point where I need to get to. Yeah, well, you've said this before, and other authors on the podcast said this before, but it really reinforces the point that sometimes it's nice to put a little space between what you've written before you go back and start writing again. It gives you time to think about, you know, what you've done and uh, maybe come up with a better idea. Yes, no, absolutely. That's exactly what happened in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, where I was going before in the two other instances just would not have worked out. It wouldn't be nearly as good. And then, and then this, you know, what, what I built in Putnam was just the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to do with Divine exactly what I wanted to do with them. Well, it's it's a fast-paced read. It's a fun uh, mystery. It's a nice little setting. Um, and uh, next time, put more lobster in there. But uh, you know, <laughs> got it. Lobster, yeah. extra butter. Yeah, with extra butter. Uh, so, uh, just as we finish up here, um, can you tell us what's next uh, for Travis Divine? So, I'm working on the third Travis Divine novel now. It'll be out in the fall of next year. Um, as a as a former lawyer, um, you'll appreciate that book next April. Uh, it's called A Calamity of Souls. And I've been working on this book for about 15 years. Wow. And it's a drama set in Virginia in 1968. And a lot of it is autobiographical. And I've been wanting to write this book, I think, my whole life. Um, and finally got to the point where I thought I could do it justice. Um, and it's a very different book for me, but one that I feel is very important. And I take on a lot of things. It's a it's a very fast-paced book in the courtroom the courtroom scenes, which take up about 150 pages of the novel, mm. are intense and allow me to get back in the courtroom, which was terrific. I love that element to it. Um, but it's a book that the structure of this book is one I don't think anybody's ever seen before. Um, just the elements that I bring together to try to move forward. Um, and I I set it aside many times over the years and wasn't sure I was going to finish it. And then finally, um, when I looked at some of the pages I've written, I realized that I didn't tell you it was 1968. You might think it was a contemporary novel. Um, So I thought, well, it still has relevancy. So I'm proud of it. I poured my heart and soul into it, and we'll see how it goes. That'd be great. I look forward to that. I always love a good courtroom scene. And, uh, you know, you said it's part autobiographical then, too? It is, yeah. I mean, I I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it describes the world that I grew up in. That's great. All right, well, we'll be looking for that, and we'll be looking uh, for Travis Divine next fall and uh, keep writing it. And I'm looking forward to that Netflix series, too. That sounds like it'd be a fun, fast-paced uh, adventure as well. So, David, I want to thank you for uh, being on the podcast. And our listeners don't know this, but we had a technical difficulty yesterday, but you were kind enough to come back and record today. So we appreciate that uh, because you can't ever uh, you can't ever be sure when you're working with the technology, can you? Could never be sure. <laughs> I, I can testify to that. <laughs> well, thank, thank you a lot for being here. You bet. Have a good day. Take care. Yeah.